Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of The Moments That Made Me, the weekend podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Hello and welcome to The Moments That Made Me. This is a podcast that asks people not where they are now, but rather how they got there. I'm Vicky May, editor of The Weekend magazine at The Irish Examiner and your host. This podcast took shape because of our times. 2020 has been a year of reflection. We're forced to live in the now and we can't make plans too far ahead. So many of us find ourselves looking back. Here, we ask people to do just that, to take a walk through their lives and pick the key points, good or bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives. The moments that made them. Louise O'Neill is the best-selling author of Only Ever Yours and Asking For It, groundbreaking titles that changed the national conversation and challenged our attitudes to everything from consent to body image. In her weekly column for Weekend at the Irish Examiner, she teases out issues around gender politics. Louise is a powerhouse, a woman who has affected change in our society. Her latest book, After the Silence, is a new direction for her, a thriller and an absolute page-turner. But again, bigger issues are at play here too. Domestic violence, psychological abuse are all key themes. Louise is incredibly open, honest and speaks from the heart in this interview, especially about her eating disorder and the road to recovery. Our conversation was over an hour long, but really, you won't want to miss a minute. Enjoy. Louise, thank you for being our guest today. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, I have to say, I have really looked forward to your column landing in my inbox every week during lockdown. Uh, t- to be honest, I've craved it because from the get go, you've been you've been telling it like it is. And I think the message that's been emerging in this second lockdown is to embrace how you feel, to kind of leave that forced positivity behind you. But that's one that you've been saying that from the very beginning since last March. You know, we were all quoting Seamus Heaney and you were going, look, actually, if you're having a bad day, it's okay to have a a bad day. It's okay to say that you're not okay. Yeah, I mean, that is years of therapy um, coming through there, Vicky. Um, And I suppose being told, you know, I've been in therapy since I was 17 and I suppose it's only really in the last few years that I have sort of fully incorporated that message into my own life of 
just feel your feelings. And, and it's so basic. And, you know, if you watch a toddler, like we, we actually know it so instinctively. Like if you watch a toddler, you know, like they feel everything. And when they're upset, they cry and it passes. Whereas I think the problem is, is that so often as adults, I mean, obviously we can't behave like toddlers. Like we can't just sort of fall to the ground and throw a tantrum whenever we want. But I think that we, we yeah, I know sometimes you really feel like it. Um, but I think that we have become so used to, I suppose, stuffing down any um, feelings that we deem painful. Um, you know, whether that's pain or hurt or trauma or anger. Um, and I think the problem is, you know, it's that whole, that saying of, you know, what you resist persists. persists. Um, and it just, the thing is, is that if you really feel all of your feelings, like they do pass and they pass quicker. So actually, if you, if you just sit down and you have a little cry, you know, on a day where you're feeling terrible, if you can find the space and the time to do that, like, it actually dissipates quicker, I think. Um, so sometimes I think that's just the message that I have been trying to incorporate into my life. Um, and I try and do that every day of just feeling my feelings. And, and even though it sounds so basic, some days it's, it, th that can be quite hard. And I suppose during lockdown, when it felt almost terrifying, I think to actually lean into the fear and the anxiety and the worry felt as if it would overwhelm us and, and that we would drown in that. Um, so I think that there was like this almost manic rush to, you know, for the baking um, and to try and find a way to use that time as best as we could. Like, I'll learn a language, I'll, I'll write a book, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever. And it, it just sometimes I think it's actually just allowing ourselves space to be human and to process that this is a really difficult experience that we're going through and it's okay sometimes to feel upset. And that's not saying that you have to wallow in it, but I think it's acknowledging that we're feeling it at the same time. I know I contacted you during the summer, kind of late summer, and I contacted a lot of our, our writers to kind of say, you know, what lessons did you learn from lockdown? And and in fairness, you put me in the in the most lovely way that you always do. You kind of put me back in my box and went, why did we have to learn anything? Why did there have to be a lesson from lockdown? Can we not just have survived it? And I was like, God, you know what? She's dead, right? And that's what you're talking about with, you know, someone feeling the need. They have to use the time to learn a second language or do all these amazing things where it was just enough to have to have gotten through it, you know? Yeah. Well, I did. I felt very inspired by all the other people who were saying, you know, what they had learned. I did feel a Go bit on, tell like... tell me about Taylor Swift. Talk to me <laughs> about Taylor Swift. <laughs> well, I think it was because... You know, Taylor Swift, who just emerged from lockdown and she was like, oh, you know, you guys, are, you know, with my extra time, I just wrote this <laughs> album and it's actually probably the best album of my career and it's going to get me like the best reviews of my career. And I just so you're felt like, I hate Taylor Swift. And I mean, I like Taylor Swift, but I actually felt sick. I was like, Taylor, no. OK, just just stop this, um, because I think, I mean, for me, particularly at the beginning, there was an enormous amount of pressure, like the amount of people who said to me, oh, you must be thrilled with this extra time. You're going to have two books written by the end of it. And I felt as if my brain was broken. Like I couldn't focus for longer than like 10 minutes. Like I, I couldn't watch anything on TV. I couldn't read anything, which would be very unlike me. Um, and that just wasn't conducive um, to writing. And I found this time now, you know, with this lockdown, um, I have found that a little bit more... I don't know. I suppose at the beginning, it was just this sort of abject terror 
Whereas I think this time the prevailing feeling is I think people are a bit fed up. Um, and so I, I suppose in a way that's easier for me anyway to to navigate than that feeling of just complete overwhelming terror. And how has the lockdown been for you in terms of day to day? How have you coped? How have you managed? Um, I mean, it's difficult because... You know, my partner um, is a journalist um, and he lives in Dublin um, and it is very difficult. You know, I feel not being able to see him, um, you know, obviously we've always done long distance, but we would have seen each other every weekend um, and not being able to see him um, for months on end uh, has been a real strain um, on our relationship. Um, So that has been really trying um, and I think that, you know, you go into this kind of mode of saying, I'm very lucky, I'm really fortunate. And I think that's important to, to take stock of that, you know, that like... But it only gets you so far. Yeah. That, but that I mean, was, that, and you said that to me, I was saying no one is sick, no one is sick, but that only takes you so far. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's 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 always important to acknowledge that and to acknowledge your privilege. But again, I suppose it, it's still being true to the fact that I do feel a bit, you know, um, fed up a bit, you know, with this. Um, and I suppose as well, we're both, I think we're both the sort of people where it's like, you do the right thing, you know, because I know a lot of people said, oh, did you, sne- you know, did you break lockdown? Did you sneak down? Did he, you know, did he, did he sneak down? Did you sneak up? And I feel like w- we both do feel like, you know, okay, we're all being asked to do this. You know, there are very legitimate reasons why we're being asked to do this. Um, and I suppose as well, because he's a journalist, you know, I I, I feel like he would just he would really on moral grounds disagree with um with doing that um but sometimes i have been very tempted <laughs> but i suppose <laughs> we just it's just one of those things you're like this is the way it is and you just kind of have to just keep moving forward with it your your book the new book after the silence which is such a departure it's an incredible thriller and i know i contacted you afterwards to say your main character keelan was just floating in my head for for weeks, nearly months, I couldn't get her out of my mind, which is which was quite incredible. You've gone into the thriller um, genre, but there's deeper issues too. There's a murder, but there's also an awful lot about physical and psychological abuse. Um, and you wrote for us in the past about your inspiration for the book. Do you want to tell us about that and also the research you did for the character of Keelan, which I think was really interesting? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, After the Silence is my first um, psychological thriller. Um, but, you know, I suppose I'm not really defined by the idea of genre. Like my first novel was dystopian. You know, I've written a fantasy retelling of The Little Mermaid. I, I'm i more drawn to the story. And then I think it's, OK, how do I tell this story? Um, but, you know, I suppose as well, I am the sort of person I get bored quite easily. Um, so it's always about like, how do I challenge myself and how can I kind of push myself here? Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a challenge writing this sort of book because I think you're you're you have to be very concerned with issues like pacing and and, you know, putting in sort of cliffhangers and, and drip feeding the information throughout the narrative so that, you know, the reader just will want to keep turning the pages. Um, but I suppose the idea came to me, um, which, you know, I wrote a piece um, for the examiner about this. Um, the idea came to me um, when I was listening to the West Cork podcast, um, which was, you know, such a huge hit for Audible in 2018. Um, and, it, you know, it's about the Sophie Tuscan de Plante, um murder. And I suppose for me, you know, I've never really been drawn to true crime. I've always felt a little bit squeamish about it. 
because I feel like so often the the murderer or the suspect or whoever tends to be glorified or they are made famous in a way that like and then the victims names are so often lost like I think Ted Bundy is a perfect example of that you know um so true crime wouldn't really be something that I would have necessarily been drawn to but I mean when I heard about the West Cork podcast I was like I mean of course I'm going to listen to this because I think anyone who lives in West Cork and you know lived in the area when the murder happened like will remember I suppose the impact that it had like it was just so incredibly shocking um and I was 11 when it happened and you know it's not like I mean 11 is pretty grown up you know so you you know that these things happen you know you know that people are murdered and that you know really terrible things happen in the world but I think you you think of that almost as happening in the outside world you know that that happens in New York or London or Dublin you know but not not in our community um and I think it was just just such a jarring just such a horrific thing to happen and I suppose as well when you're brought up in an area like West Cork you're brought up to believe that like tourism is really important um and you treat you know I suppose blow-ins or tourists or you know whatever that is with I suppose you treat them in a sort of a different way than maybe you would treat all the, like the locals in a, in a kind of an extra friendly, extra welcoming, the Cade Mille Falta, you know, um, because you're aware that I suppose that that money is important, you know, um, for, for the people of West Cork. So I think even on that level, for something like this to happen to someone who had come to West Cork, who I suppose had chosen West Cork as somewhere where she felt like she could be safe or that it would be a refuge it just felt really devastating um and I think when I started to listen to the podcast there was a part of me that really hoped that by the end of it you know that they would have solved the crime you know just have the answer yeah exactly and I think I suppose the thing is is that real life is just never tied up as neatly as it is in fiction um and when I when I was finished with the podcast, I think I I couldn't stop thinking about it, and it wasn't necessarily about that the this particular case. I think it was just the idea of like the Sosnok, you know, like the dreaded outsider, the dreaded Englishman, and then also these two people coming from the outside with their English accents and and asking questions and um and I suppose trying to uncover secrets that some people didn't want to be uncovered, and to me, it just seems like. The, a really interesting premise um, for a book. Um, and then, as you said, obviously, you know, there's the domestic violence um, aspect to it as well. But I think the reason for that was that when I started investigating a lot of these true crimes, you know, when the suspect or when the murderer was a male, a straight male, there was always this sort of rhetoric around, God, why does that wife stay? And, you know, why how, why does she stay with him? Why does she support him? And I was really struck by that because I think there was such an uncanny echoing of the language that we use around victims of domestic violence. You know, like, why do they stay? Um, Why don't they just leave? And I think once I started to look at them in that kind of parallel way, it just felt like to me, oh, this is the perfect um, way to tell this story and to to look at this issue in in a deeper way. Changing steer, we're going to move on to your moments in a second. You've identified some moments that that made you defining moments in your life. Um, I'm looking ahead at Christmas, which sounds a bit crazy, but I think people it it's on people's radar at the moment uh, much earlier than usual because 
of all that's happened with with the level five lockdowns. I, I, people can't quite articulate, I think, what they're feeling. But you wrote a column, I think it was a year ago, and I think it really sums up um, what people are feeling right now. And you said that so much of Christmas is predicated on the idea of consistency, tradition, ritual, deeply ingrained habits. It's a time of year where resisting change is not just expected, it's actually celebrated. And because of that, it's difficult to deal with grief, loss, the greatest transformation of all. I think that those sentences sum up what we're all feeling now, that we're missing out on every single thing that we associate with Christmas. We're worried, you know, we can, people are talking about Christmas. They were talking about it in October. Um, it, it's that loss of tradition, really, isn't it? Oh, my God. That's so funny. I, I predicted 2020. <laughs> you did, you did. Uh, no, I, I really didn't. But um, yeah, God, it's when you said that, I was like, wow, that is, that is mm. it. That's that is now. the truth. Yeah, I think that is the fear. And we are all grieving. Yeah, 100%. Because I think that, like, I know even, you know, in my own house, you know, that, that we would have always had on Christmas morning, like, we used to live down by Inchdani, um, and there was a tradition started, like, when I would, before I was, before I was born, where everyone who would, came, who after the swim, they would come up to the house for, like, a drink and, you know, things like that. And and then I suppose that has continued on and it's it's happened every Christmas. And I keep thinking, God, that's going to be so strange this year for the first time, you know, in my 35 years that we we won't have that. And I think there's a fear in that if it isn't, if it doesn't happen this year, does that mean it'll never happen again? Because I think that is the fear when you skip a tradition, you know, one year that you've broken something. Um, or you've broken the, yeah, you know, and you've broken the chain of it. And w- yeah. once you can, once you can skip it or not do something once, then, you know, what's going to prevent you, you know, the following year. Um, so I think there is a lot of fear around that. And and people, it's difficult. And, you know, I think sometimes I think that when you're an adult, you know, I think that you're, you're looking at two categories of people when it comes to this. You're looking at children and you're looking at elderly people. And for children, you think it's not that easy to say to a child, it's only one year. Next year, we'll be back to normal, you know, um, because to them, a year is just such an incredibly long life period. Yeah. yeah, it is. Because, I mean, if you're if you're six, like it's one sixth of your entire life, you know. And um, so it just feels sort of un- un- unbelievable, you know, that that maybe that they wouldn't be able to celebrate Christmas um, in the way that they've come to expect at that age. And then I think, you know, when you're looking at elderly people, I suppose the fear is that maybe there won't be another year. And, and I think that is the worry as well that, you know, this could be our last Christmas together and what sort of Christmas will this be? So I really understand that people are feeling afraid um, and I think that, and that people are worried and that people just don't know how they're going to navigate this. Um, and I wish that I had some like incredibly sage words. Um, and I suppose the best that we can do is just the best that we can do, you know, that you, you know, what what is um oh that amazing Christmas song, which I absolutely adore, Judy Garland, um, you know, we'll, we'll muddle through some somehow, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, you know, we'll muddle through somehow. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that's just, that's, that's what, what we we'll have do. to do. Yeah. That column that I just um, quoted you from was, was actually written about your first defining moment that you chose to talk about, which was the death of your uncle when you were 14. I was 14. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, 
I remember when I was a small child um, when I first sort of understood what like death meant, you know, um, I remember being very scared that my grandmother would die, my maternal grandmother. And I remember I was in the kitchen in the house, we would call the house over home, you know, and I was in the kitchen and I, I said to her, I was like, you know, Granny, I don't want you to die. And, you know, it's so funny looking back because she must have been like in her mid 60s. You know, she was she was a young, you know, a relatively young she was woman. Grand, yeah. yeah, probably going, <laughs> OK, calm down. Um, but and, you know, she she bent. I remember she bent down to me and she said, everyone, you know, everyone dies, Louise. And, you know, the Lord calls us home um, in his own time, but it won't be for a very long time yet, you know. And I suppose that seemed to me the natural of order of things, you know, that my grandparents would die um, and then my parents would die and then I, you know, so I suppose that's the the sort of order that you think it will follow. Um, and when I was 14, as I said, um, like I still remember the day very clearly because my aunt was getting married um, and my sister and I were, um, we were going to be bridesmaids. Um, so we were in Brown Thomas and we were trying on these dresses. I still remember it. It's so funny, this wine dress. And um uh, my mother, there was her mobile um, started ringing and uh, could hear her on the phone. And then she just said, um, I'm, I'm not going to cry now, but anyway, she just said, you know, just tell me, you know, just tell me, is, is he dead? And I remember just turning and having this like really sudden fear of like, oh my God, it's dad, you know? And whoever it was on the other end of the phone wouldn't say anything. They just said, just come home, you know, just come home. And she said, you know, there's been an accident. And so we were like tearing off the bridesmaids dresses and like, you know, running to get the car and like driving home. And and I remember like she turned on the radio and um, Elton John, you know, that song, you know, Candle in the Wind um, came on. So funny, like it still feels so fresh, like and it's like 21. It was 21 years um, last month. And uh, so she turned it off and like we we drove and I just remember like praying, like going you know, if he'll be okay, you know, like if, you know, please God, just let him be okay. And like saying to my mother, because he was driving a lorry and like saying to my mother, well, look, if if he was in an accident, like if he was in an accident with a car, like, you know, he's in the lorry, like he surely he's, you know, he's okay or whatever. And we, we came in, like, I remember just like racing in and um, opening the door and like, it was just chaos, you know, like it was just chaos inside there. Like everyone was just kind of running around the place. And um, I think it was my aunt-in-law was just like, oh, you know, he's dead. And it's just... At 14, how do you deal with that, Louise? I think like that has a, That just, has an impact for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, I think it was, you know, he was only 30, um, which of course at the time seemed very grown up. But now with 35, it just seems sort of impossibly young, you know? Um, I think... Sorry, now I'm like, it, it's so funny. It always just feels, I think it was so, I suppose, scarring in a way, like, because it just, it. I suppose, over home as well had always been like this real... Um, Sanctuary for yeah, you, Yeah, you know, it had been yeah. somewhere where I think I had always yeah. felt really safe. safe case. Yeah. yeah, and then to come in and to see this and everyone was just, like, my granddad was weeping and... And my grandmother was so still, like I remember that, like she was so quiet and she just looked, you know, I suppose obviously she was in complete shock, but I think it was just this sense of like the earth opening up and you're like, it's just, I'm, I'm not going to survive this. I think that I remember just that, you know, that feeling and I, I threw up, which I still think it was just such a physical 
like reaction. I just remember like running out and like just just vomiting. And it was it was so bewildering, I think, all of it. Um, and I suppose as well, you know, I was 14, my sister was 16 and we had all of these sort of younger cousins, but they were all like the oldest one was four. So they were all very, very small. And I suppose sometimes you kind of get a bit lost. Whereas I think if we had been a bit younger, maybe... You might have been minded more. Yeah, I think we would have been. Whereas I suppose there was sort of an expectation of, you know, you just have to get on with this now, you know. And... And it was close enough to Christmas too, Louise, yeah, was it? it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh my God, that Christmas was terrible. So I I sort of, I, in a way, feel like this can't be any worse, you know. Um, and, yeah, and I remember, and like you know obviously I think they were just trying to calm me down but I remember being just like hysterical like I couldn't stop crying and I remember someone saying to me if you don't if you don't stop crying you won't be able to come to the funeral and like I didn't cry for like seven years afterwards like I was really like when you know when you talk about like feeling your feelings yeah like and I think you know it, it definitely like it manifested itself in an eating disorder of like a way of being like I can't be sad I can't be upset I have to be strong and also I think a feeling of there's no one coming for me like there's no one coming to take care of me I have to take care of myself there's no one there for me I'm alone in this and I think that really sort of like perpetuation and sort of I carry that through um throughout my entire adolescence um but I suppose there's it 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 was just really destabilizing, I think, you know, um, because you just realize how fragile life is. Um, and of course that's the truth. And you know, there are children who learn that a lot earlier, you know, about like, you know, their mother or their father, and it's it's really it's really devastating. But I think it's that sense of anyone could be next, you know. It could be me, it could be my parents, it could be my sister. Um, and it's sort of like a sense of dread that you nearly carry with you, um, you know, ca- carry with you then. And can you pinpoint that that moment, that day as being or that, that period of time as being something that really contributed to the eating disorder that you've spoken yeah. so openly about? Um, I, th- I mean, definitely in, in, a, in a few different ways. I suppose firstly, as I said, because of that feeling of I am not allowed to express my emotions um, and also that I suppose and and the thing is is that it goes somewhere like you you know and my therapist would always say you know the body holds the score so often if you're not expressing your your anger or your pain or your hurt like it'll manifest itself as like a physical ailment um and for me I think it was needing somewhere to sort of process all of that pain and the eating disorder becoming like a really effective way of numbing out which I suppose is what any addiction is like that's a tool, like that's why people start is because you have so much pain or an emptiness inside you. you want to stop feeling. Yeah, yeah, you just want to stop feeling. Um, And I suppose secondly, like I remember, you know, after I couldn't eat, like it was like, you know, and I, I always think it was quite funny that my first reaction was to vomit, you know, because it, it's it's sort of like just this years and years of dealing with anorexia and bulimia. Um, and I remember I just couldn't eat, like I physically just like, I just couldn't swallow anything, you know, and, and I lost like a lot of weight and 
the funny thing is, which is why I'm always so like, which is why I'm always harping on to people like about not commenting on other people's weight is because I wouldn't have noticed. Like, firstly, you're grie- like I was grieving, so I wouldn't have noticed in that way. But also I wasn't a teenager who like my mom had a weighing scales in her bathroom, but like we didn't have a weighing scales in the main bathroom. I didn't weigh myself regularly. Like I might have done it every couple of months or whatever, you know, that kind of way, just out of interest. Um, So I think that once people started commenting on, you know, having lost weight, I wanted to maintain the weight loss. Um, But like it wasn't a natural weight for my body to be at. So in order to maintain it, I had to sort of start taking increasingly desperate measures. Like it started off with like an obsession with exercise. Um, So we had like a, my dad would have had a a bike like an exercise bike so it would have been like on that for like a couple of hours every day or you know and then of course that sort of went into um like a cycle of binge purge restrict which went on for years um so I mean definitely like you know he he died in October and I would say like within six months I probably would say that I was definitely struggling with very disordered eating so it's it's a pretty clear I mean you know eating disorders are very complex and there are a lot of other issues um you know that come into play um but I do think that that was probably the beginning of it. Your second moment is connected and it's talking about going into John God's when you were 21 um and I know you've spoken about how recovery is a very slow process I think that's really it's a really important message to get out there isn't it? Like we're expecting. And you wrote as well in one of your columns. Oh, you know, I thought I'd go in there for 12 weeks and I'd come out and I'd be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I remember the first session that I was in, there was a a, a girl in it, well, a woman um, in it. And I remember she was had been there for eight weeks and she was totally, she had been out at the weekend. Like she had been out on like, um, on like her because if you if you maintained your weight if you met your weight goals you were allowed sort of increasing you know amount of privileges um which I was never given because I never maintained my weight but anyway um and so she was out for the weekend and she said that she had binged and purged I remember thinking but like you're on week eight like you should be you should be nearly yeah like you're really done here you know um but uh yeah so I think it is sometimes it can feel like when you start recovering like that it and I'm sure it looks like to other people as well that it's like this overnight um success story but actually a lot of the time it's just it's been years and years of sort of plugging away at it um and and working at it and and you know every time that I think I've reached I suppose a new high with it there's always something else that'll come up you know because as soon as you've sort of dealt it's like playing what's that game you know um whack-a-mole you know it's like as soon as you you know hit one like another one will come up and you're like oh now I have to deal with this um but I think that's good um and you know sometimes I think people are afraid of therapy because they feel like oh you're like oh it just brings up all of these issues but the thing is is that those issues are there um and they are causing I think problems um in your life or the way that you're reacting or the the way in which you're I suppose just you know, in your relationships or in your career or whatever. And and I think, you know, you can, you have to deal with them um, sooner or later. But I had been, I had spent the summer before I went to St. John of God's, um, I'd spent it in India. And the, I remember the, the a few days before I had gone to India, um, I went to see my GP um, and she had, you know, just to, I was like, you know, I'm going to India, just, 
you know, can I have these antibiotics or, you know, if anything happens, you know, blah, 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 just to sort of have a medical kit. And she weighed me and um, she was like, I don't, I really would strongly um, advise that you not go. Um, as she said, you are technically anorexic um, at your current weight. And she said, like, I've never met anyone who's gone to India for, like I was going for four months and she was like, and hasn't, you know, because obviously I think most people will have some sort of stomach issue or, you know, or, um, and we'll have to deal with that. Um, so most people, I suppose, who go do do lose weight. And she just, she said, you know, I think it would be really dangerous, actually. And I was a bit like, tickets are bought. <laughs> bye bye. Um, and um, so I I left um, and, you know, she was she was very right um, because obviously I, I did within, like, say, around three days, get like a really bad um, dose of um, of food poisoning and um, and then just wasn't eating anyway. Um, and I think I, I was I was on I was on two um fronts really, because I wasn't eating. And if I was eating it, something I was throwing it up. But I also picked up, I'd say in the first maybe three days that I was there, like some sort of parasite um in my gut. So like I just couldn't digest anything anyway. And so by the time I came home, like, you know, I was very, very unwell. Um and like I remember I had to go back to see my GP and she was really insistent like you know you're gonna have to go in and you know I think it's interesting kind of looking back because there was a lot of denial around it you know like my I was gonna say were you fighting it or were you saying oh no I was I was I remember it's so funny I remember so silly reading this article about Noel Edmonds and this thing that he was doing that was called Cosmic Ordering Service, where oh, he would yes. write down things that he wanted to manifest and then yes. they would just, you know, they would just come. And I was on the train from Cork to, to Dublin. And I remember writing down a specific weight that I wanted to be because I felt like if I was that weight. No, but this is actually quite a, like I, I said, if I was that weight, everyone would know that I was sick and then maybe people won't. Not ignore it, but I suppose, you know, when especially with bulimia, I suppose you can maintain a pretty normal um, body weight. And actually, I think that's such a that's the problem, really, with a lot of the time with people, their lack of understanding around eating disorders that they think that unless you're really emaciated, that you can't have an eating disorder. It was actually you could have someone who is, you know, whose body is genetically disposed to be a size 16 and has starved themselves to get down to a size 12 and people don't see them as being unwell, but they're not taking care of themselves and they're not eating properly and they have anorexia. But because I suppose the diagnosis is, you know, like like a, like by BMI, which is such a problematic um, standard uh, of measurement anyway, that I think a lot of people go undiagnosed. Um, so I remember thinking if I get like really, 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 really thin, then no one will be able to pretend like this isn't happening. And actually, I think maybe I wouldn't be able to pretend that it wasn't happening, that I couldn't ask for help, but I wanted to get to a point where my body would ask for help for me. And I, so I remember coming back and going into the doctor and I was the exact weight, the exact weight that I had written down. So maybe Noel Edmonds uh, is on no, something. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I remember like, I was very much like, yeah, I want to go in. And I remember my dad and my mom, I think they were probably in shock, you know? And like, my dad was like, no, you know, can we not keep her at home? And, um, 
and he was so funny because like my 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 dad is really into fitness you know so his kind of thing was you know we'll make sure she gets out for loads of walks and my doctor was like she can't go for any walks <laughs> don't, don't like keep, just keep her inside keep her home yeah um and um so I think they I suppose the idea of sending me somewhere like St. Anna God's was really scary do you know um and um so we went we went to the Rutland Centre first of all um, but I wasn't, um, you have to meet um, a certain weight requirement because it's not a hospital. Um, so I wasn't, um, I was too underweight. They were like, we can't take you because we can't oh, medically nice. sort of, you know, um, guarantee your safety. Um, so with St. John of God's, um, for the first sort of, I think, few weeks I was there, I was on a heart monitor and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and it's a very, like, it's a very strange experience. You know, I was 21 I was wild, like I was a wild 21, do you know that kind of way? So like was constantly out, like just constantly like off my face on some sort of like substance, <laughs> legal or otherwise. And and all of a sudden then, you know, I was in this hospital where if I wanted, if I had a headache and I wanted to ask for a Panadol, like it was like, you know, you had to go through like about three different people before you could get your Panadol. And, you know, even when I first went in and they, they look through your bag and, you know, they take your, like they took my razor and they took my, um, the tie of my dressing gown and, you know, things like that. And it's, it's very, it's scary. Like it, it was, it's one of those moments Especially where. Especially at 21, Louise. Yeah. Like you, you don't know, even know I, yourself at 21. I, exactly, scary at any age. Exactly. Yeah. And I was, I suppose, you know what, you're really reveling in your freedom. Like, you know, you've, I was, you know, you're, you're in school and then you get to college and you're just, you're, you're doing your own thing. And then all of a sudden you're in an institution where, you know, it's very strict sort of structure and what you can and can't do. And, um, and like, it's funny even when you talk about Christmas, because so I have had quite a few strange Christmases. So maybe this is why this one isn't, you know, um, as terrifying to me, maybe as it is to other people. But like, I remember, you know, they, the nurses put up some tinsel around the, um, like the nurse's station and they would have Christmas music on. And like, I, I just remember, I kept thinking, this isn't supposed to be my life though. Like this isn't supposed to have happened to me. Like I'm not supposed to be here with these people. Like, you know, this kind of constant sense of something really has gone very wrong. Um, and I, and with Christmas, you know, you had to meet your weight requirements, which again, I did not meet. So I remember drinking like three pints of water before weighing and she just looked at me and she was like, you know, you could just tell she was almost like rolling her eyes and she said, okay. So I got out on Christmas Eve. Um, I got Christmas Day and then I had to go back up um, on Stevens's Day. But like realistically, like I shouldn't have probably been allowed out at all. Um, but I just was so desperate at that point. I was like, I can't, I can't not go home for Christmas, you know. Um, so but years and years of therapy is definitely what you would, you'd be advocating it. That's what really that's what got you over the line. That's what helped you to recover. And you came to us probably a year ago about doing an agony and column for the examiner. Um, and you remember you saying, there's no one better qualified after all my years. Of <laughs> but therapy. I'm sure like an actual, you know, an actual <laughs> trained professional will be better qualified. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, you know, as I said, I have been in, in therapy for a very long time. And, and, you know, some of it good, some of it bad, some of it that I took on board, some of it that I didn't. You know, I think you, you have to be in the right headspace and you also have to be getting the right help. You know, I, I talk to people who have eating disorders and who are going to, 
maybe the local therapist that their GP has recommended. And the thing is, is that that therapist, I'm sure, is absolutely amazing and would be brilliant if they were suffering with depression or if they were um, suffering with anxiety or if they were going through a divorce or if, you know, or anything like that. But when it comes to something like an eating disorder, like you need someone who is specialized in this. Like you would not go to your gynae and say, you know, like I have a lump in my breast. Can you give me like can you remove this? Can you, can you give me cancer treatment? Like you just wouldn't because you would understand that people have different specialities um, and that if you have a particular illness, then you must go to the person who, you know, is best sourced um, to deal with that. Um, so I would definitely say, you know, like, I mean, obviously I talk a lot about the eating, um, eating disorder center in Cork, but you know, like they did change my life. Um, and I think it was when I actually started getting like appropriate, targeted care from someone who really understood you know what I was talking about and where I was coming from with this like then things really began um really began to shift yeah your third moment was that you want to talk about is moving to New York when you were 25 I was 25 so you'd already been through a lifetime of stuff John calls at 21 and Suddenly here you're off to New York at 25. I know. I feel like my life has really slowed down since then, to be honest. I feel like it was really sort of dramatic (laughs) in my 20s and then just kind of really like has gone very mellow. Um, Yeah, it was 25. Um, It's funny. I did a postgraduate um, in DIT after I graduated from Trinity. Um, It was in fashion buying. And... I think I just, you know, I, I always loved clothes um, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I met this um, woman there called Vicky, who um, became like one of my closest friends. Um, and uh, I remember her saying to me that she was getting a J visa, um, not a J1, a J visa, which was sort of, it was a student. You had to be just graduated college. So like within a year of graduating. Um, and it was like an internship visa for the States. And she was like, I really want to go to New York. And I had, I had gone to New York or to the Hamptons, so just outside for my J1. Um, and I've always loved the city. Like my dad would have um, sort of gone back and forth there and lived there when he was um, in his early 20s as well. Um, so I think I always had sort of this yen to to go and to live there. So she said she was going to go. And I think I was like, oh yeah, cool. And then all of a sudden there were forms being produced and I, I felt a bit shell-shocked. I was like, oh Jesus, I'm actually going to have to, um, I'm going to have to go um, now. And so I remember I arrived and I had an interview with Elle magazine um, for, I think it was the day after I arrived. And oh my God, it was, it was a September, but it was roasting. Like it was early September. It was really, really hot. Um, I just couldn't cope. Like my hair was like insane and um, just remember just like sweating and like Monica I gave Friends, myself, kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, just, it, was it was insane looking <laughs> and, and trying to get, like I'd given myself loads of time, like, I mean, like an hour, like, you know, that kind of way, but couldn't seem to find the right building. So I arrived in, I was maybe like two minutes late, but I was absolutely sweating and like sitting down and having the interview and just like this really kind of surreal, you know, because I was still slightly jet lagged, you know, so it was almost like this surreal dreamlike quality. Um, and then coming out of the interview, I'm being like, God, I really hope, um, I really hope that went OK, because that's the only interview that I have set up. So if I didn't get it, get it, I'm absolutely fucked. Um, but uh, but yeah, I did get the job. Um, I was uh, interning for the senior style director 
um, of Elle magazine. And like, I remember the first day that I, w- no, the second day, sorry, that I was in the office, um, we were on set um, for a Sarah Jessica Parker um, cover shoot. She was really nice. They were all, actually, I have to say, everyone was really lovely, but like, it again was just this very strange, sort of a surreal moment where you're like, how am I here? Like, what is happening? How did I manage to get this job? What am I doing? Um, And like, and you know, it's funny because I think, you see, now I think I'd be able to process it more, you know, whereas I think at the time I felt like I'm not good at this. I'm not getting this quick enough. And I definitely wasn't. Like, you know, the thing is, is that, and I'm not being self-deprecating. No, it wasn't even. It wasn't? Honestly, Vicky, I just wasn't very good at it. Like, I I just remember, like, you know, they kept saying in the interview, (laughs) and attention to detail is really important. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Attention to detail, attention to detail. And then I'm just like, uh, airy fairy. And like, you know, and I remember my, one of my closest friends um, in the office, this uh, amazing uh, Korean American woman called Angela, who was just so organized and so sharp and sort of just, so she really sort of took me under her wing, but I'd say she was like, cause she was, I don't think what age she was, she was like 20. Like, so she was five years younger than I was. I'd say she was like, this one has just arrived off the plane and like has no idea what's happening, you know? Um, so I think, and I suppose now I would be able maybe to not internalize that. Whereas I think there was this feeling of, I'm not very good at this. I'm not getting this as quickly as I would, I would like to. Um, there's a couple of people in the office who I feel like are a bit impatient with me or that they find me annoying or, you know, whatever, because I'm obviously not getting this as quickly as they would like. And I really internalized it. Like, and I really sort of like... It's a tough age though, you're yeah. in your 20s. Yeah, and I think I am just, I am finding that confidence? It is, and I think I'm naturally very hard on myself anyway. Like, I am a perfectionist, and if I get it wrong, I'm I'm really, it's, it's hard to explain. I get quite panicky. It's like this sense of everything is falling apart. I am useless. I, 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 like, it's a real sort of, like, loathing and sort of, like, a real sense of, like, worthlessness. Um, so I think that really manifested itself. Um, just I was doing a job where every day I felt I'm not I'm failing at this, you know. And I think it's it's really hard. And I've talked to other people sometimes who are in jobs, and I'm like, honestly, I think there's a point where you have to decide: is this tough and challenging, but I can do it if I work hard enough, or is this just not for me? Am I not suited to this? Because there's it's just really demoralizing actually to be in a job where every single day that you go in you just think I'm not this I'm not good at this like I'm just not good at this and um, and I suppose for me like the way that I tried because as soon again as those painful feelings came up like that I'm not good enough I'm worthless I'm useless like I couldn't cope with it and I suppose my instinctive sort of coping mechanism was I'm going to start restricting food so like I remember like start buying weighing scales and starting to weigh myself and like and then kind of like you know really like monitoring the numbers and like focusing more on that than the feeling of like oh I'm just I'm failing at this um so I pretty and like it's funny because I think like I remember my mother being quite concerned about me going to work in the fashion industry. You know, she was like, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. You know, what if it triggers um your, you know, your eating disorder again? 
And in a way, obviously, you know, like working in an industry that fetishizes extreme thinness, you know, and being surrounded by people who are very, very thin is not helpful. But I also think that I could have been doing any job and actually the feeling of the pain of sort of having to confront not being good at this or feeling like I was failing would have manifested itself in an eating disorder, whether I was working in the fashion industry or not. So that's why I'm sort of loath to give very simplistic, you know, fashion bad or, you, you know, I think it could have happened in any in any office. Um, but I, I like my partner at the time, my boyfriend at the time, I remember him coming to see me on my birthday in February and he just said he was like, he was really shocked actually. And I think he was like, I, I, you can't, like you have to start seeing someone like you just look really unwell. And, you know, and he was really generous because like I was interning, I didn't have enough money to pay for a therapist and like therapy over there was very expensive and, and he paid for it, um, which was really, and like we didn't, like we were definitely, our relationship was on its sort of last legs at that point anyway. And we actually ended up breaking up before I uh, came home. But like the generosity, I think, of someone doing something like that for you, you know, he was like, you have to get better. And I remember the therapist was incredible. Like she was amazing. Um, and I really started to recover, like when I was there. And I often think that if I had stayed, I think I would have fully recovered. But I think the problem was, was that I came home. I'd been seeing her for six months. I came home and I didn't have anything set up here I, you know, I didn't have the support system and sort of within a few months I was restricting again. Um, and I think it was too early on in my recovery. Um, I was to take the stabilizer wheels off, if you know what I mean. You were brave to go to New York in the first place, but you were very brave to come home as well, like to walk away from that amazing job that people would kill for. And you came home very much with the intention of I'm coming home to write a book. Was that the, that was the, I need to be in West Cork to write this. Yeah, I think, I mean, it wasn't that I needed to be in West Cork to write it. I couldn't afford to live anywhere else, you know. And and I think then I realised, oh, actually, it is really helpful to live in the country for me. Because I remember, like, being in New York and it's such a frantic, like, you know, the pace of life is really, really frenetic. Like, it's funny whenever I go back, like... I remember trying to get the subway and then just coming back out and getting a taxi. I was like, I cannot believe I got this every single day, like to and from work. It just felt, I just, I just felt like there was too many people and I, I just couldn't breathe. Um, but I think, you know, I had spent the year there and I loved the city and I had made amazing friends. And that's the one thing I will say about New York. Like I know people who've moved to London and it took them like three years to make like really good friends. Was I think there's a real openness um, about Americans in general, you know. Um, I mean, maybe the fact that I was a white European, but to be fair now, a lot of my friends were people of colour. So I don't think that's you know quite a fair thing to say, but I, was, I, I won't generalise about Americans being open as a whole uh, in at this juncture um in, in history um but um so I've made incredible friends um and I really loved my life there and I didn't want to come home but I didn't want to keep working in the job that I was working in you know I had made myself like I had forced myself to become organized and have that attention to detail like I had made myself be good at that job and Vicky it was so hard you know, like it was just every day going against every sort of instinct that I had in order to make oh, that myself... creativity you have. I can only yeah. imagine how hard it must have been. And I suppose as well, it's just like you can't, 
like to spend my days fighting every instinct that I have, but also to only be average at something, but to be averagely good at something rather than really excelling. It just felt like, what's the point? And, and I think I knew that the job wasn't for me. And I had, I just had always wanted to write. And like, I remember my dad saying, you know, what, you can write on the subway. You can, you know, you can get up earlier. And I thought, I can't get up any earlier. I'm getting up at like five o'clock as it is. But, you know, it's funny because nothing's a waste of time. You know, I had the idea for Only Ever Yours when I was there. And actually what I found really interesting was when I came home was like my boss, who I had been a little bit afraid of, not my, like my main boss was just this wonderful woman who was just incredible. And her assistant was kind of, you know, the who would have been in charge of the interns. And she was strict, you know, and, and she had very high, which I totally understand because at the end of the day, it was going to be her ass on the line if one of us made a mistake. But like she, like, I owe so much to her because even though, like, I was terrified pretty much every day inside in the office, like, I found when I came home that, like, I I just was, like, I, I was more organised, like, I was more structured, like, I had much more, I don't know, and, and sort of, like, an expectation of, you know, I have to work this hard, you know, and I think that that was actually really useful because I had you know, I had I, been in college, like I, I'd done my undergraduate, I'd done my postgraduate, I had had jobs in retail. It was my first proper job in an office where the standards were incredibly high, where they expected you to sort of like excel at your job, even though know, you weren't getting paid, but like they still expected you to excel. And I think that like, it really stood to me, like, you know, and you know, I noticed that when I came home that I was like, well, I just have to get up early and sort of go to work and, and do these things. And, you know, it's funny even now because when I was there, I used to work six days a week and I had Saturdays off. And now I still work six days a week because I do, you you know this, I write my column on a Sunday. So it's like I'm still in that routine of like Saturday being my day off. Um, so it's funny how I suppose you think sometimes you like you can't see how all the experiences that you're having, how they're going to pay off in the future. Yeah. And it's only looking back that you, you can sort of see the passion or you can see what the whys, you know, like the, or, uh, like why that happened at the time that it did and and what I took from it and what I learned from it. Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. The next moment that you've picked is the publication of Asking For It and all of 2016. And for anyone that didn't know you, they must have been looking at you thinking, wow, this is amazing, this incredible book. And like, it was was such a talking point. It was a bestseller. It was incredible. You were doing the documentary for RTE that year as well. Like from the outside, everything looked absolutely incredible. But... Mm that wasn't the case for you. I mean, it's true. Like it was the best year that I've ever had professionally. You know, it just felt like everything was exploding. And and it's a very interesting experience to be at the center of that because it, it, it's actually made me realize how arbitrary it is. Like a book will sort of take off or won't take off. And actually as the writer, you've very little control over it. Um, you can only control the quality, but actually the quality doesn't even really determine the success. It's it's the zeitgeist, it's the timing, it's people being ready, it's word of mouth, it's all of these factors kind of coming in to play the right place at the right time. Um, and I think it was, I mean, it was exciting, um, but I definitely wasn't ready for it. Like, I think if it had happened now, 
I'd be much better placed to like take care of myself um, and to mind myself through it. But I think I wasn't and I just felt really exposed. And I suppose a lot of, you know, particularly because, you know, Asking for It is a book that deals with sexual violence and rape culture um, and having those kind of conversations makes a lot of people really angry. So I, and you know, it's funny because I started writing the column um, the same year in, in February of that year. Um, and I think that really enraged people as well, you know, when you have, I suppose, a national, uh, you know, a platform in a national newspaper and you're talking about subjects that, like the subjects that I was talking about. And I felt really grateful to have that platform. Plus, you were very vocal, Louise. Like, if yeah. at that stage, like if a radio show wanted to comment, you, were, you became that voice, which was yeah. very, I can only imagine the backlash you were getting. And you would have been yeah. very active on Twitter and... Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So it's, I think it's personal then, isn't it? Absolutely. And I suppose now, you see, you would realise that someone else will, will go on the radio show. But I think at the time, you know, it was this sense of responsibility of, I want to make sure that, you know, that whoever is on the radio show is going to talk about this in a responsible way. And, and I think it, it was that sense almost like what I was talking about earlier, you know, after my uncle died of, I'm alone in this. Like, I'm the only person who can do this. You know, I have to do this by myself. I have to take care of this myself. Um, rather than, I suppose, taking a step back and realising that, of course, there were loads of other people who were more than capable uh, and probably would have done a better job, you know. Um, so I think the the abuse and the attacks online made me feel very scared a lot of the time. Um, like, really frightened. Um, and also, I think... Sometimes it feels as if, and maybe other people would have been better at letting it go, but I think I probably took it really personally. Like, of course they would say that about me. Like, I'm someone who's easy to hate and I'm someone who's, you know, easy to dislike. And um, and there's something, there's something wrong with me. Like, that's why these people are, you know, being so horrible because they can kind of see that, that, that I'm a bad person or, you know, whatever it was. And it just became like just as was this really toxic mix of like fear and anger um and trying to be very brave and, and and feeling like you know it's important to talk about this and and being very vocal um and it just became like I really felt like I was going to have a break like a breakdown you know um I really I felt that pressure yeah like that was it I felt constantly like I can't breathe you know um and by the end of that year I remember thinking, I'm probably going to die. Like, you know, and, and, and that sounds so, that sounds so hyperbolic. But I think that first thing when I was, I wasn't eating again. And like the eating disorder had sort of really re-emerged at that point. Um, and the bulimia was really out of control. Um, and like I was being very careful to sort of maintain a weight that was, very thin but not that was thin but not like worrying you know what I mean that people wouldn't the notice alarm bells wouldn't yeah. Be. yeah yeah so that people yeah. wouldn't like intervene you know that they would kind of allow me to continue doing what I was doing without intervening um so it was very kind of like trying to maintain that and just I remember at the end of um of New Year's New Year's Eve in 2016 my parents had gone out and my sister was gone out as well and 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 sitting down and writing like sort of these lists you know of things that I was proud of or things that I had achieved that year and I, I divided them up into sort of personal and professional 
And the professional one just was pages because there have been so many things that I had done that I was really excited about. And then the personal thing was like, I think there was like two things, like just literally two things that I felt like I had achieved or I felt proud of on a personal level. And I suppose the disparity like between the two was so striking that I just thought I have to, I have to get better. Um, And, you know, this was 2017 was the year where I did, you know, start to properly recover Uh, and like properly recover. And I think that anyone who is dealing with addiction will understand this because there were periods of like dry spells where you feel like you're a dry drunk, maybe, you know, where you're not engaging in the behaviors but you still have all the urges and you still have all the thoughts and you're yeah exactly and you're clinging on for dear life you know whereas I think that like recovery is a very different feeling um and it's hard to sort of put that into it but it feels much more solid um so 2017 was the year really that that I started June um 2017 June 18th. I'm trying to think what the date is. It's June 18th. And it's very funny because Marion, um, who um, her, because uh, we've talked about this because I feel like we're so similar, my friend Marion um, Keys, and um, her recovery is uh, January 18th. So I always thought it was really funny that ours oh. were kind of like the same. When we talked about it like years later, I was like, that's so weird. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the year that I, the date that I celebrate. Um, and, you know, every year I think, when it's, you know, I just look and I go, like this year now it was three years. And it feels unbelievable because I never thought I would have it. Like I I really, I think there comes a point where you relapse so many times or you've made so many efforts that you just think it's never going to happen for me. It's just never going to happen for me because I've tried so many times before. And I think that's why I keep talking about this because I had from 17 to 33 had maybe the longest that I'd ever gone without any sort of behaviors was six months I had one six while I was in New York that six month period and other than that there was maybe there might have been four months here or there might have been a month here but like it was just a constant like a constant like that it was just part of my life in the way that you would talk about brushing your teeth or you know like it was just like this is just part of what I do and who I am and how I cope and I think to know that I could fully recover after all of those years of like as being as sick as I think you you could be really um, and to make a full recovery. I think I just really want people to hear that, that it doesn't matter how long you've had it. Like I had it for like, as I said, 17 um, to 33 for the majority of my adult life. Like I had an eating disor- disorder longer than I didn't have an eating disorder. So I, it was more familiar to me to have an eating disorder than I was not to. Um, and I think that if I can do this, I suppose I feel like anyone can. You just need the right, you just need the right support and the right care. Talk to us then about Richard, because that's your last moment <laughs> that made you uh, meeting your partner, Richard. When did you, when did you meet him? Okay, so we had followed each other on social media. Um, such a sort of a millennial um, love story. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we had followed each other on social media, and he like I I had I I'd liked his work. He worked for um he was doing reports for Pat Kenny at the time, and you know there were a lot about current affairs. But he had done a really good one on um domestic abuse actually, um and so we we you know we would have you know like 
you know when you follow people on Twitter we'd never met so like you kind of would reply to certain things or you'd joke about certain things but like I didn't really think anything of it and then I had to go in um when um, when Almost Love was coming out in March 2018 I had to go into the Pat Kenny show um to do an interview with Pat and he was there Richard um and he sent me a message later saying something like you know when you're back up in Dublin do you want to go for a coffee and I remember thinking, who does this guy think he is? Like, do you know, like, just being like, yep. what? And, and I, I don't know why, I, I kind of, I remember slightly fobbing him off. And uh, it's such, this is, you're going to think this is absolutely insane. But anyway, and um, he, he gave me his number. He said, oh, look, here's my number anyway. But he had... I can't, I actually can't, this is just going to sound so mental, but anyway, um, my, when I went into St. John of God's, right, the number of my bedroom when I was in there was 63. And it's become this very strange thing in my life ever since that I will always see the number 63 if I need guidance or like if, you know, if something really like, it, it sounds really bizarre, but like if I'm, if I'm worried about something, you know, I, I'll go to a shop and I'll I'll buy something and it'll be like, you know, 663 or, you know, like something like yeah. that anyway. So I'm always kind of like, I'm sort of aware of the number and his number had two 63s in it. And I thought, oh, that's really weird. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to give him my number and we'll see how it goes. And it's so weird because like, I fell madly in love with him and he's been like the best thing that has ever happened to me. And Thanks also, number what's really odd is that the very first time that he texts me was the 6th of the 3rd. This is no. the 6th of March. Yeah, like so, it, and I didn't realise that until months later. I know everyone listening to this is going to think I'm absolutely <laughs> insane. And I'm sure if he had been a monster, we wouldn't have ended up dating. But it just turned out that he was like really funny and lovely. Um, and uh, yeah. And I you know said, what I love? He minds you. You've told me in the past that he sometimes he'll monitor your social media. Yeah, yes. Well, so he's, he's in charge of it at the moment. Um, I which love means, that. But Vicky, it means that I can't give out to him for his constant Twitter use because he's like, well, I'm really doing <laughs> yours as well. Um, but I think, I think what was really interesting actually with Richard was that like, I think relationships are such a great mirror and I think that they are like the best way to grow. And like it hasn't always been easy. And I think actually what was really challenging, particularly in the beginning, was I really struggled with how nice he was to me. Um, and it it really highlighted, I think, and I had to bring that to, to therapy and go, oh, I'm actually, I feel more comfortable in a relationship where the other person is emotionally unavailable or the other person is cruel to me or the other person sort of treats me pretty sh- like shit. Because I think I felt like, that confirmed something or that they saw the real me because they were treating me badly. And if I could make this person fall in love with me, then maybe that meant I was worth loving and having no regard for anyone who would have actually treated me well, because it would have been like, well, what's wrong with this person? Like, why does this person want to be with me? Like, can he not get anyone else? You know, are his, are his standards this low? Um, and I think, so he was really kind and really lovely. And I had to confront my discomfort with that. And also, I think, to challenge my own ideas around what a relationship looked like or what love looked like, because I think I thought that it was this very dramatic you know, fights and feeling really nervous all the time and wondering if they would text me and like feeling really on edge and feeling like I had to be on my best behavior. And and I think I was really addicted to that cycle. Whereas actually I suppose with Richard, it felt really easy. 
and it felt very gentle. And I think I was a bit like, is this boring? What's going on? Why am I? I, I think I was kind of confused nearly, do you know? Why am I just content? Yes, exactly. Right? It was like, why do yeah. I just feel sort of like really like happy and like comfortable? Like, why do I, I, I felt that was it. Like I felt uncomfortable the drama? with the comfort, you know? Yeah. And, and I think... Would, but the timing think, was probably right to meet him. Like yes, if you were oh, in absolutely. such a good place and, and yourself, like, you were... And 100%, like I think, yeah. you know, it, it's so interesting because... Like I think the the relationships that I were that I was having like those kind of really addictive like corrosive um, and I wouldn't even call them relationships but sort of like entanglements um, were very much indicative of the way in which I was treating myself like the way I was abusing myself the way I was abusing my body the way I was hurting myself like you know self harm really um, which I think is what an eating disorder is and actually once I started to recover like of course there would be space then for a relationship to come in with someone who was kind and and I think what's really great about Richard is that you know I think the thing is with really as I said about relationships is that they're mirrors so they hold up to both of you I think because when you when you want to have that level of intimacy you have to be incredibly honest about this is who I am and these are my the, the the worst parts of myself and the parts that I'm ashamed of and I don't want anyone to see these but because we're so close you're going to see them at some point and to be able to be like that with each other I think and to work through that um and what I really like about Richard is is that he's willing to go there with me and I think because of having done all the work that I have and because of having been in therapy I think if I had someone if I was with someone at this point who wasn't able to communicate or who wasn't able to I don't know to go on that journey with me I think I would really struggle um whereas I think we're both very aware of sort of our own flaws um and are just willing to do the work actually and that sounds hard and it sounds boring but it's not like because it's such a joy actually it's such an honor um, to be able to do that with someone else and also like he makes me laugh more than anybody else in the entire world and um, and I think that when you're with someone that you feel comfortable enough to be the entirety of yourself and for me that's someone who is very silly at times and then is also like can be very critical and can be very because I'm very critical of myself um, and I think that sometimes it's it's difficult I suppose because I don't want to see that part of myself um and to have to look at it um face on and I suppose to heal it um and it's painful at times um but it's also kind of magic and I you know as I said lockdown has been really difficult and there was a period where I, I think we were both unsure if we would make it you know um and I think that the thing is is that when you love someone that much, you know, and when someone else is like your favorite person in the world, I think it's just like, you want to make it work. Like you're, you know, it's like, I don't want to lose this person because the thought of, I don't know, like, you know, even like when my, I knew my book was coming out and I thought, I can't imagine having that experience without, without Richard by my side and I think that's when you know that this is the person you know that you want to to be with and there are no guarantees and I think that's something that's hard as well because I think we want certainty we want the 
guarantees we want the absolutes and I think when you go into a relationship you have to accept that you hope and you want it to last forever and you know but I think you have to accept that like as I said nothing is ever 100% guaranteed and you you just you know you go with it and you you go with each other and you grow with each other um and I'm I feel very privileged that he's the person that's kind of with me on this on this journey you're talking there about honesty in, in your relationship, but your columns are every week are also so honest and raw and from the heart. And I just want to say thank you for, first of all, for being our guest, but also thank you for, for what you write every week, because I know it is helping. It is helping people through this lockdown oh, well, and it's well, telling them it's OK to feel it's OK to feel down. So, yeah, well, Vicky, I, you know, you know how much I love you. Um, and it's so funny, whenever people ask me about my job at the examiner, I'm like, my editor is just, and I do say this, I'm, I'm, you can ask anyone, I'm like, I'm obsessed with my editor and I love her. <laughs> and you've always been so generous with me and you've always given me the space, I think, to, you know, I think if I had been writing for another paper, I might have been sort of pigeonholed into a very political space, whereas you always gave me like the freedom to say, you know, if I want to write about like, um, cultural appropriation this week or if I want to write about feminism the next week I can also write about like my grandmother's death and um, the week after and I can also write about like having had an eating disorder and then a week after I can write about something completely silly and I feel like it's actually been really lovely to be able to I don't know just be like fully a fully fleshed individual um and not sort of like a two 2d version um, of myself and I really appreciate you giving me we can you know, that. we can see the fun Louise too yeah. you know that's it <laughs> I'm there I swear <laughs> Louise thank you thank you so much Vicky thanks to Louise O'Neill for talking to us sound and editing are by JJ Vernon thanks for listening and see you next time Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.